want to welcome all of you here to The Grove. My name's Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time, or maybe first time back in a while, and you know your relationship with church is kind of a little bit start-stop, we're glad you're here. And for those of you that call this place home, thank you for coming to celebrate Easter with us. It is so good for us to gather together, to be in one place, and to get to retell the story that we're celebrating this morning. Now, the story that we're going to look at today is likely you, not a new story. My guess is if you're like me, you've got a couple of decades of Easter's in you, and so you know the story, you know how it goes. And one of the challenges of my job this morning is like there's no surprise at the end. Most of us know that when they get to the tomb, guess what they're going to find? You know, it's empty. You know, so it's kind of like, well, how do you build tension and drama to a story that everybody knows how it ends? And so... I'm going to look at a story from the Gospel of Mark that we have been reading through all of Lent. It's a story we've been in for six weeks, if you've been with us. Now, if you were to poll all of the pastors who are preaching Easter messages this morning, and you were to ask them, if you could choose any gospel to preach the Easter story out of, which one would you choose? And I don't know this to be true for certain, but I have a hunch. I have a hunch that you take all of the answers and no, virtually nobody would say the Gospel of Mark. Nobody would answer Mark, and there's a very specific reason they wouldn't say the Gospel of Mark, because the Gospel of Mark ends in like this really abrupt conclusion. It's kind of like when the record scratches, or when you kind of pop the clutch a little bit, and it jerks you a little bit. This is the way that the Gospel of Mark ends the resurrection story. In fact, it was so abrupt, it was so puzzling and so confusing, that for about 150 years, people were wrestling with why the writer of Mark chose to end the gospel this way. They're like, this, this doesn't feel good. This feels unsettled. This feels unresolved. We all like those resolutions to our stories. We like the moment when the characters embrace at the end, when everything works out the way that we want it to, and we can go home in peace because, ah, there's been a nice bow tied around it all. And Mark says, Nah, forget all of that. And so about 150 years later, after Mark writes his gospel, we think that some people decided that there should be an additional ending applied to the gospel of Mark just to kind of smooth out all of the rough edges. Well, we're not going to look at that extra ending this morning. In fact, we're going to go right to the place that nobody wants to go and talk about how Mark actually ends his story of the resurrection and the way that he kind of leaves us just kind of hanging in this strange and uncomfortable place. So if you have your Bibles with you, kudos to you this morning. If you've got a phone and you want to pretend like you're reading along with us and you're making your your list of things to do after the Easter service and lunch is over, go ahead. We'll play along with you this morning. And if you just want to read it on the screen, we'd be glad for you to join us that way as well. So here we are, Mark chapter 16, verse one. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, if anybody here is needing a baby name, Salome is probably available. Not a lot of friends. You, think, you did too? Uh, Salome, and if any Salomes are here this morning, I apologize. I'll apologize in person after the service. My grandmother was named Salome. Save the email. I won't read it. Salome bought spices so they could anoint him. Now, 
this is something that we need to know a little bit about kind of first century customs. Now, when someone would die, particularly if they were Jewish back in the first century, it was really important that they didn't um, stay unattended to for very long. There was a sense of urgency upon finality of their death. And so what would happen in these moments is somebody would die, and they would take the body, and then they would anoint it, they would cover it in oil and in spices, and then they would wrap it up in a shroud, and then they would place it in these little tomb-type places. Now, the tombs weren't like we're accustomed to, where you're buried in the ground. They were carved into rock. They were like these mini caves that families or groups of families would be in possession of collectively. And so someone dies... And so they anoint them with spices and oils, wrap them up, and then they would kind of stick them on this little shelf in this tomb where they would sit for like a year. Now, the oil and spices, they would actually assist in the decomposition process. One of the challenges back then was they didn't have backhoes, and so they couldn't dig a bunch of holes in the ground to bury people, particularly in certain areas where it was really rocky. So what they would do is they would allow the body to decompose. Then they would go back in after a year's time. They would gather up all of the bones, and they would put them in a little bone box that we would call an ossuary. And then they would kind of engrave, like, Jonathan was here. You know, and then maybe they'd put his dates. And then they'd stick the box in the back of the cave with all of the other ossuaries or bone boxes. This was to kind of save on space, and this was how they would keep all of the family together. And so all of this burial process happened within the confines of this actual tomb. If you've been to Israel, and you've had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and see some of these tombs, it's really interesting. You kind of duck in, and you get in there, and this would have been where they would prepare the body, wrap it, cover it, stick it on the shelf, and then they come back in a year. Well, the reason that we have the details in this story is because of the timing of Jesus' death. If you can remember, he dies on a Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday in kind of this strange usage of the language. But Jesus dies on a Good Friday about 3 p.m. Now, Jesus was a Jew. All of his followers were Jewish. Guess what starts at 6 p.m. on Friday? The Sabbath. That's right. That means there's no work happening from 6 p.m., Friday night to 6 p.m. Saturday night. So what you have is this deadline, this kind of time crunch that Jesus' followers are operating under, trying to make sure Jesus' body is properly prepared for burial. So in the time that they have available to them on Friday afternoon, they wrap him in a shroud knowing that they're going to come back and finish the work Sunday morning. This is what we see happening. This is why the women are going to the tomb with a bunch of spices. They're going to finish the burial process for Jesus. Why? Because the story's over. The person that they loved, the person that they followed, the person that cared about them, that taught them, that led them for three plus years was dead. Very clearly dead. And just like we know that they knew back then, dead people... They stay dead. Dead people always stay dead. There's no surprises here this morning with that, right? Just like there were no surprises back then until that very first morning as they're headed to the tomb. So this is where our story picks back up. So they go, they bought spices so they could anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, 
when the sun had risen, so early Sunday morning, we had a nice large group for our sunrise service, so they got to experience what it was like on that very first Easter morning. We have to kind of pretend a little bit. For some of you, this is like, this is very early on Sunday morning for me, so maybe you're not having to pretend that hard. Sun had risen. They went to the tomb again to finish the burial process. And they had been saying to one another as they were approaching the tomb, navigating the garden, who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance to the tomb? Again, another obstacle that these women had to navigate. Typically, they would do all of the burial process, roll the stone away, and then they wouldn't have to think about it for a whole year. But these women, going back to finish the job, recognize that there is some three, four, five hundred, maybe eight hundred pound stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. Well, we're going to need to figure out how to move that. And since all of the men ran and hid in terror and fear, they're not available to help us move this thing. So us women are going to have to figure out how to do this ourselves. And so they go to the tomb, prepared to figure out how to use physics and fulcrums and levers and kind of get that stone out of the way. And when they show up, they look up. And it says they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. Now, this would have been surprising to them, just like if we could imagine ourselves in that story, it might be surprising today. One, because of the sheer size of the stone, but two, the list of kind of usual suspects that you would have assumed would have moved the stone would have been very short, and it would have probably only included the women who were there that morning to anoint Jesus' body. Did the Romans show back up? Did they want to take the stone for some reason, or take the body for some reason? Did they move the stone? Did the, the Jewish leaders come? That doesn't make any sense because that would have had to have happened on the Sabbath and nobody who's Jewish works on the Sabbath. So why is the stone moved out of the way? This is what they're wondering. And so stone's gone. They decide to enter into the tomb. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. As we would have been. It's like when you walk back into your house and you don't know one of your kids is home and they step out around the corner and they scare you, you know, because you're like, I did, I thought I was the only one in here. Or maybe you've had that experience somewhere else. You thought you were the only one somewhere and then someone pops out and kind of takes you back. This happens about every, I don't know, three days in my house. (laughs) My wife comes around the corner and she's startled, surprised that I'm there. And I'm like, I work from home. I don't know why you're so surprised that I... And she's like, you're always here. And I'm like, then why are you surprised that I'm here? <laughs> anyway, startled that there's somebody in this tomb. And he's wearing this white robe, which from other gospels, we know he was likely an angel. It's kind of one of those details of the story that clues us in to something else, some other significance. And so this man's sitting there. The woman see him. <gasps> They're taken back. And he says to them, noticing that they were alarmed, do not be alarmed. And then he names why they're there and why they're alarmed and all of the confusion and bewilderment that they're probably experiencing in that moment. He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, just to to make sure that we're all on the same page. Not just any old Jesus, because there were lots of Jesuses back then. It was kind of our version of the name Joshua, so it wasn't like this very unique name only applied to Jesus. But Jesus of Nazareth was a very specific person, and so he's naming the exact person that they're looking for. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Like, yeah, that's the one. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place that you laid him. 
To which the women were like, yeah, that's, that's why we're here, to finish the job, because the story's over. He's been crucified, as you've just named. You said it yourself. He's dead. This story is over. And he says, but he's not here. He's been raised. And then he gives them kind of this directive, this imperative. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And if you're kind of familiar with the way that the story works the Gospel of Mark, just a couple of chapters before, Jesus is having a conversation with his followers, and he says, listen, I'm going to have to die at the hands of the religious leaders, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then I will meet you in Galilee. And so this man in the white robe is naming the thing that Jesus has already promised them. And he says, he's going ahead of you, and you'll see him. Remember, he told you this, just as he told you. He's waiting for you in Galilee. And so the women do what we would have done if we would have been in that situation in that moment. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They said nothing to anyone, because this was not how they thought the story was going to end. And yet, this is how Mark chooses to end his story. Right there. There's no beautiful reunion with Jesus. There's no like slow motion scene where they run to each other's arms and hug, and one person lifts up their feet as he spins around. Like, that doesn't happen in this story. Now, we see different accounts of this in other gospels, and so we kind of infer maybe what has happened, but Mark just lets it drop. Just like that. The women, they fled from the tomb. For wonder and amazement and terror had seized them. And instead of going and telling the disciples and Peter like they were instructed to do by the angel hiding in the tomb, they say nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Close the book. Let me close us in prayer this morning. Wouldn't that be a really strange Easter message? You would go home so dissatisfied. Like, that's the last time we go to that church. He just ended it. But this is where Mark ends it. For Mark, this is, we're to assume the ending of his story. And it doesn't make sense, and it's confusing, and it's disturbing, and we have to wrestle with why this is how Mark ends things. Unless this isn't how Mark ends things. What if this ending, this strange, confusing, puzzling ending to the Gospel of Mark isn't actually an ending? What if this is not how Mark resolves his Gospel? What if Mark knows something and has clued us into something for the entire story that maybe we've just missed because of all of the Easter sermons that we've gone to? For so many of us, Easter and the resurrection is the end of a story that we tell. It's the closure, it's the punctuation, albeit an exclamation mark. But this is how the story of our faith ends. The resurrection. Michael even names it when he was like, this is the story we sing about. This is the story that we're here to tell and to retell. This is the story you've come here this morning 
If I was to preach on anything other than the resurrection, you'd be like, why didn't he talk about the one thing that we expected him to talk about this morning? Because this is how our Easter's end, with the resurrection. But what if Mark knows something that he's waiting for us to realize? He leaves a clue for us at the very beginning of his gospel that helps us understand why Mark chooses to stop writing where Mark chooses to stop writing. And so if you remember from a couple weeks ago, if you were with us, or let me just show you what Mark does. So in the very opening words of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The reason that Mark chooses to end his gospel the way that he does is because he knows that it is not an ending. It is only the beginning. The resurrection is not the end of a story. The resurrection is the beginning of a story. The resurrection is actually the beginning place of all of our stories. If you look at the words of the songs that we sing, we were dead in our sorrow and in our sin and in our shame. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand, and death was arrested, and my life began. The resurrection is the beginning of an entire story that we get to live into. This is why it is such good news, not because it wraps up the story so nice and neat and beautifully, but because it is the launching pad for all of our stories, for our life, in this new reality where God has defeated sin and death. And so for you, if you're here this morning and you struggle with this whole religion thing because you're like, look at the world, just look at it, it's a mess the way people treat each other, the suffering, the violence, the heartache, the abuse, the oppression, you just name it. Just turn on the news at any point in the day. You'll hear all about it. You look at all of that and you say, that's why I struggle to believe. Because of the way that the world looks. The reason that the world looks the way that it looks is because the story isn't over. Yes, there are so many things about life that are hard and that need to be different, and we want to be different. But the story's not done. It is still in the beginning. All will be made right. All will be healed. All will be restored and renewed one day. And that day is the end of the story. But we're not near that day. We're in the beginnings of the story, which is why there is still hope there is still time and there is still opportunity for things to look different than they look now. And if you're here today and you're not looking at the world around you saying this is a strange ending to the story and you're looking at your own life that feels concluded, like you're past the point of hope, that in the ways that your story has come to its conclusions that there can't be any future left for you, let me just tell you, that the resurrection is not the ending of the story of Scripture. And the resurrection is not the ending for your story as well. Whatever you're experiencing in this moment, there is still a beginning awaiting you. So you say, Stephen, that's well and good, but here I am. 
And if you knew my medical prognosis, you know that I've got weeks, months. And so, yeah, it is an ending for me. And I'd say, friend, it is just the beginning because we are promised eternal life in Christ. Not even death punctuates our story. And that's the good news and the hope that we stand on as we celebrate the story of the resurrection. Not death, not your mistakes, not sin, not the ways that you have betrayed others or the ways that you have betrayed yourself, not the constant pattern that you can't seem to escape the grip of. There is nothing that concludes and ends and determines the ending to your story. The resurrection is the beginning of a story for all of us. No matter what point it feels like you are in yours. And so I hope as we start to realize that the story is just starting, that we will listen to the words that the angel shares to the women. He is not here. He has risen. And go and tell the disciples and Peter that he has gone ahead of you. Wherever you are, Christ has already gone on ahead of you. The midst of a broken relationship, Christ has gone ahead of you. There's life and hope on the other side of that. Navigating unemployment or frustration in your job, Christ has gone ahead of you. Your story isn't over. It is just in the beginning chapters. Your family's a mess. You're struggling with your relationships. The story isn't over. You're just in the beginning. Friends, we stand on a hope that the best days are ahead of us, even if it's not in this life. It will not be clear skies and smooth sailing for the rest of our lives here. But we are promised an eternal hope greater than any present circumstance or future death. And that's the promise that we celebrate this morning. And so friends, know this is not a strange ending to the gospel of Mark. This is a reminder that for each of us today, it's only the beginning. And what a story we get to live. Let me pray for us this morning. Grateful God, for the ways that you are already working ahead of us, we give you thanks. God, for the ways that you are working in our very midst right now, God, we are so grateful. God, despite our brokenness and our sin and our dysfunction, God, for the ways that our world is corrupt and hurting, God, we ask you to move and work. God, help us to hold on to the promise of the resurrection that this is just the beginning of a story that you are telling and that we have an invitation to live into and experience. God, help us to continue to move forward, knowing that you are ahead of us and calling us to you. God, we are grateful for this chance to be gathered this morning to proclaim this good news of the beginning of the story. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.